What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Sam Miller. Sam, thank you for being back on the show, man. It's been a while. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, dude. I don't know if it's just been a while since we chatted or what, but I'm a little bit nervous to record this episode. But regardless, I am stoked to get into this topic, uh, the topics that we have today. But first, as it has been, I think it was October 2020, I think was the last time we chatted on here. So just for the listeners who might not know, can you just give us a quick background on who you are and what you're up to? For sure. So my background, I've been in the health and fitness industry for a little bit over 15 years, really started out just my own personal health and fitness journey led me down, I would say first kind of the training and fitness rabbit hole, um, got really interested in nutrition and all elements of just how the body functions, how different components of stress and our caloric intake, micronutrient status, all of those things can really impact transformations. Um, I was a little bit of kind of an unconventional case myself, but also worked with a really wide array of clients starting even uh, during my university experience. I was a student coordinator, personal training, did some online coaching at the time, and even throughout um, my graduate degree and beyond, kind of always had coaching as either my full-time job or side hustle throughout um, really my entire adult life. So it's something I'm super passionate about and really got the experience from my own sort of attempt to get healthier, be more fit, um, improve performance, but also working with pretty unique uh, subset of clients. And so probably at this point, I'd say a little over five years ago, I noticed a little bit of a shift. I was having more and more coaches who were working with me um, in my particular coaching practice. So I'd already had some coaches, but by that point, it had really shifted to where this was like a disproportionate amount of people on my roster were health and fitness professionals. And so around that time, um, started doing significantly more mentorship. I was doing a little bit on the side, but that's really where it came into kind of be like the focal point of um, our business and what my team does today. So I've been doing that um, for several years now. And my main focus is providing continuing education for health and fitness professionals um, and also just creating content and translating some of the more complex concepts in the industry making them a little bit more digestible and actionable for, you know, whether that's a health and fitness coach who's getting started or someone who's a health enthusiast in their own transformation, trying to leverage that information for their own goals. Absolutely, man. And I think you do. I feel like since I have been familiar with you, which I think is right around that five-year mark, actually, um, I know you've just done so much just following you from afar. I've taken so much education and value from you, and I've heard great things about functional nutrition metabolism school as well. And I know you're also releasing a book, which is going to be coming out here pretty shortly, I believe, and I want to talk about that in the podcast as well. But definitely appreciate everything you put out. And again, I'm stoked to get into our topic for today. Now, per usual, um, I kind of just have a hodgepodge of somewhat interrelated questions around nutrition and metabolism that I want to kind of dig into here. I always have so many different things that I want to discuss with you. So first, to kick it off, um, you've talked a lot in the past about how stress impacts our physiology. And I know on our previous podcast we've done together, that's been one of our main conversations. Now, you recently shared a post called How Stress Makes You Fat that explains something called cortisol-induced insulin resistance that I'd love if you could break down for the audience. So first, can you explain to the listener what insulin resistance is and why it's something we might want to avoid? For sure. So the idea of how stress makes you fat is essentially a little bit of a catchy tagline to draw attention towards the fact that 
you know, the hormone cortisol, as well as our insulin sensitivity are super important for overall, you know, body transformation goals and body composition. So I like to kind of reframe insulin sensitivity as essentially, you know, a receptivity to nutrients or how are we managing the nutrients that are coming into the bloodstream? So if we have good insulin sensitivity, we can consume a meal and our body will work through our sort of, uh, endogenous mechanisms or things that exist within our body, we have hormones to regulate blood sugar. So that's what insulin does is it's going to help to um, control the blood sugar in the serum. And it also kind of shuttles nutrients around. Now, if you are someone who has either consumed caloric excess or essentially too much food relative to your activity level, or um, potentially you're super sedentary, really, you know, it's a, a matter of what kind of energy can we pull through this system? Or is there sort of a, a threshold uh, that we've reached or exceeded, and that will push us towards a point of insulin resistance. So when you think of someone who's maybe pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic, et cetera, that's kind of insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome on one end of the spectrum. Now, someone who's more insulin sensitive, that is the complete opposite. That means you know, you're relatively lean, you're probably fairly active, likely making good food choices that are enhancing that insulin sensitivity. And there's other things in our lifestyle that are going to impact that as well. So like sleep, for example, um, can help to promote not only good nutritional decision-making and enhance our resiliency to stress, but it also does promote insulin sensitivity through a number of mechanisms as well. So um, lots of different factors go into impacting whether we're insulin resistant or insulin sensitive, but some of the biggest ones are really just going to be the idea of energy availability, which is you know our food intake, and then also stress, um, which can come in a number of different forms, but for a lot of folks, it's a result of their lifestyle. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So then can you kind of break down for us what are the mechanisms by which stress can create this cortisol-induced insulin resistance? Sure. So the best way to kind of unpack this is to look at different levels um, or areas of the body where you know stress and cortisol are going to act and how that could impact things downstream. So starting kind of from top to bottom, if we look at the brain, cortisol increases the activation of MPY neurons. This can drive appetite and cravings and decrease daily energy expenditure. This activation also leads to higher insulin levels and can modify the liver's insulin sensitivity. So when we think about cortisol-induced insulin resistance, we want to be thinking both about brain and body, not just one or the other. Um, other effects we're going to have are not only in our fat tissue and our muscle tissue, but also the liver. So excess cortisol is going to drive essentially the creation of new sugar or gluconeogenesis is kind of the scientific term for that. And basically in that instance, we're producing sugar from amino acids. Now this elevates our blood sugar even more on top of any meals you've already consumed. So this tends to um, lead to a process that's called de novo lipogenesis and the creation of fatty acids from glucose. This can lead to elevated triglycerides in the blood and uh, potentially lead to a number of issues like fatty liver, for example, or fat buildup in the liver. At the level of the muscle and fat, what we see is so, for example, in fat or adipose tissue, chronically elevated you know, stress or cortisol is going to cause preferential fat storage into visceral fat. So this is basically the fat that exists around our organs, and this can exacerbate insulin resistance and raise the risk for certain diseases that when we think about from like a longevity and overall cardiometabolic health perspective, having more visceral visceral fat tends to be a bad thing. Um, now, if we also think about um, 
you know, insulin resistance, visceral fat tends to exacerbate insulin resistance, um, which is a problem as well. So it's kind of this vicious cycle of stress can, can, can contribute to that visceral fat deposition or storage, but then it's simultaneously um, making a number of other matters worse as well. Now, fat cells are also inherently uh, inflammatory in nature versus things like muscle tissue, which is going to have more uh, cardiometabolic health benefits. So really when we can contrast those two, the signals actually coming off of those tissues, very, very, very different. So think of it as like a direct message coming from your muscle is very different than a DM coming from your fat tissue. Now, um, when we talk about muscle, chronically high cortisol is going to decrease glucose uptake into the muscle. So this isn't a good thing. If you're an athlete or you have performance goals, we want glucose uptake into the muscle because that helps to fuel performance. And the decrease in glucose uptake actually leads glucose back to the liver to be turned into fatty acids. So this can result in an increase in systemic triglycerides um, and also cause lipid buildup in the muscle, which then exacerbates insulin resistance even more. So there's kind of three or four mechanisms here where stress or chronic cortisol elevations are worsening your overall metabolic health. Now, food still matters here. So if you're in, you know, significant um, caloric deficit, you move a lot, um, you know, you're not living that sedentary lifestyle, you know, that's going to be a little bit different, but we're really thinking about the individual who's maybe, you know, doesn't have the best lifestyle practices, um, but then is also, you know, still eating their meals on top of the stress that they have. And it can just impact glycemic regulation, which isn't really going to do us any favors from a body composition perspective. So we want to think about how these are intertwined. Now, if you are lean, where there's some implications here is obviously we want to be mindful of where you know our carbohydrates, where our sugars are going. We want um, storage in the muscle because we want to drive performance because we want to retain lean muscle tissue and you know obviously drive anabolism as much as possible. So when we're in a state of high stress, this does tend to have some problems, not only in terms of lean muscle retention, but also some of the other metabolic consequences that I kind of ran through um, in terms of high stress as well. So energy still totally matters. We just have to understand that like stress is impacting what's happening with both the food consumption that we have, as well as sort of maybe some uh, future consequences in terms of our exercise performance as well. Okay. Okay. That's super interesting and a very, a great succinct breakdown of what is a pretty complex topic within that. Then speaking to insulin sensitivity, how much with like the clients you've worked with in the past or the coaches you coach and in turn, somewhat coach their clients, how much stock do you typically take in fasted blood glucose readings? Is that like a tool you typically recommend coaches implement? Is it something that you don't use all that frequently? What are your thoughts on that? Just out of curiosity. So just like how the scale is a particular data point, I view fasted mm -hmm. blood glucose as a data point uh, in terms of overall you know, glucose regulation and function of insulin in the body. Now we do have other markers that can be super helpful from a metabolic health perspective, like fasting insulin, A1C, and we even have some more novel markers like glycomark or C-peptide. So we don't only want to look at fasted blood glucose. That can also be impacted by things like a dawn response in the morning, which is basically we'll see slightly higher blood sugar when you wake up. But I would say that you can use it as a tool in your toolbox. I'm a big fan of also, you know, if you're going to look at fasted glucose, also look at that postprandial blood glucose reading as well, which just means what does your blood, blood sugar look like after a meal? And so if we have the fasted glucose data point, along with a post-meal glucose data point, those can be really powerful together, but very rarely am I just looking at fasted glucose in isolation. I'm probably looking at other things like biofeedback. And if I have other blood work, 
Ideally, I want to look at that in tandem rather than just taking one singular value because your glucose can be impacted by a number of things. Your stress, how did you sleep the night before? What were your meal choices like? Um, you know, what has your training been like lately? You know, I could even go for a walk and make some changes in terms of my overall blood glucose. So ideally, we either have a number of markers, number of data points, or we're also, you know, combining it with some different markers to get a better overall bigger picture of what's going on. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So it sounds like, again, very similar to the scale progress pictures, body measurements. We're not just looking at it as a singular, singular, this is the end all be all, but it could give us like a glimpse into the bigger picture. So then when we're looking at that, like, um, that fasted, that fasted blood glucose versus that post post prandial reading, is there like a specific range, like a difference between those two values that you're typically looking for? Can you kind of talk us through that as well? We're kind of off on a tangent here, but I'm just interested in your thoughts. Yeah. So I look more at like I prefer if I had to pick one, um, I like fasting insulin combined with fasted glucose as like getting an overall assessment of someone's ability to regulate their blood sugar. A1C can also be a helpful marker as well. But in terms of fasted glucose, not everyone necessarily has, you know, there's not like a perfect reading. There's a range that we can look at kind mm-hmm. of like how um, people may maintain their, their uh, body weight at a given range of calories there may be a range where we can be metabolically healthy in terms of regulating our blood glucose. So what we're looking for with a postprandial blood glucose reading is just that you're able to have the appropriate insulin release to bring your blood sugar back down. Now, this can vary depending on, you know, are you dieting? Are you reverse dieting? Are you pushing calories in kind of a lean muscle building phase? Um, I prefer to overall kind of look at a range of fasting insulin between about four and seven. If you're really like a longevity minded individual with less performance goals, you might even argue zero to five is a little more optimal. That's a little more aggressive there. But if you are pushing carbohydrate, there is a chance you could be up in the five, six, seven, even if you are metabolically healthy. Now in terms of fasted glucose readings, you know, Western range usually looks at that as being like under a hundred. I would argue that if you're pretty active exercising and a resistance trained individual, you know, you may be significantly lower than that. Um, you know, high seventies, mid eighties, maybe, you know, low nineties, if you're kind of pushing, um, your calories and pushing reverse, or if you're just in a season of maybe a little bit more stress or less sleep and things like that, that can drive the glucose up. So I don't really like to put out like one particular marker or one particular reading for everyone, but I would look within a range and then compare the two because the fasting insulin gives us a good idea of what's going on. The A1C gives us kind of a longer time horizon. And then the fasted glucose, we can see what's going on, not only in the morning, but if we need to, we could use a glucometer post-meal. So it's very similar to the idea of, I can assess body composition improvements with body tape, photos, scale weight, and maybe I use a DEXA or a skin caliper. You know, There's a lot of different ways to kind of assess body composition progress. Glucose regulation is kind of similar in that we have multiple data points to look at to see, are we moving in the right direction? How are we managing our meal to meal, you know, overall glycemic regulation? And are we eating kind of appropriately for our goals um, relative to our response in terms of our blood sugar levels? Okay, absolutely. So then when we're working through like these different seasons of nutrition or nutrition periodization, 
with fasted blood glucose specifically, or again, like those postprandial readings, let's say just like what the data you would gain from a glucometer, how much stock are you taking in that when we're determining like which phase of nutrition or which season of nutrition we're entering? So for example, if we're in a building phase, but Hey, like we're consistently in the high nineties here, is that like that in itself enough for you to say like, Hey, maybe it's time for us to pull it back. Maybe we want to enter to this building phase and enter a deficit or something of that nature, or is it not something you take that much stock in? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So I would combine, if I were to see someone have very high fasted glucose readings combined with lethargy or overall sluggishness after meals or compromised digestion in a phase where they're pushing food, that would give me an idea that maybe we need either a reverse diet break, or maybe we pull back to like, if we are above maintenance calories in more of a lean building muscle building phase, I might pull calories back to more maintenance calories, allow digestion and blood sugar regulation to improve before pushing calories again. Um, we can also implement things like post-meal walks to bring that glucose down. So if you are struggling, you know, something as simple as a 5, 10, 15 minute walk two or three times a day or after your largest meals can really help to improve that as well. So in you know, a slightly higher elevation or slightly higher reading in terms of your blood sugar may not mean that you have to abandon your pursuits of building muscle. We just might need to consider what are some insulin sensitivity promoting activities? Uh, what does my overall training look like? What does my stress look like? Caffeine consumption and little things like that post-meal walk and improving my sleep hygiene can knock that blood glucose back down or just simply take, you know, a lot of people will use diet breaks on the way down in a caloric deficit. There's nothing wrong with kind of pumping the brakes on a building phase, getting your blood sugar under control. And then, you know, maybe a few weeks or a month or so later, adding calories again, pushing and trying to continue to progressively overload and build lean mass. Okay. But it sounds like that would be more like a maintenance phase than, Hey, we're entering a deficit and kind of breaking this yeah. building phase up with deficits. I mean, a caloric deficit is definitely one of the ways you can bring your glucose down fairly quickly. But I would also be interested in their biofeedback, right? So not everybody has the same signs and symptoms at the same glucose reading. So it's really, you know, are you struggling with fatigue after your meals? Um, are we noticing that maybe as we're adding calories, we're having this sort of predisposition towards storing a bit more body fat relative to lean muscle? Someone's still very, very lean um, and not really having any sort of biofeedback complaints. You may be able to push a little bit further than someone who's struggling or, you know, gym performance is no longer improving. Um, or maybe we're having some appetite regulation issues and things like that. So I would combine the blood glucose with the biofeedback as well as looking at like, you know, even their food choices in their food log, because, you know, combining, you know, a protein, carb, dietary fat, and the actual choice of the food within that meal um, can impact what's going on in terms of blood sugar as well. So I like to look at the basics first. Uh, you know, are we still progressing in the gym? What does our daily activity look like? What does our sleep and stress management look like? And then I might parse through the food log, make some improvements there, add the post-meal walk. If the glucose is still high. Then I might decide to pull a little bit of food. Um, or maybe we're just under high stress, add a couple rest days, bring the food down, and then kind of live to fight another day uh, on the lean muscle building front. Okay, absolutely. So it sounds like we're very much looking at at first, what lifestyle factors can we address? what nutritional factors can we address? And then again, potentially from there, if needed, we are like moving into a different phase of nutrition. Okay. That's yeah, very, we very can helpful. use supplementation too. So it's like, 
are we covering all our micronutrients since micronutrient deficiencies can impact uh, glucose regulation? And then also, mm -hmm. you know, even something like certain herbal ingredients can help to manage glucose uh, if we are potentially, you know, increasing calories. So that's something where if you're interested in that. I do have some additional content on some of those supplements as well, but I always like to start with the nutritional components first. I think post-meal walks are very low-hanging fruit and then stress management, sleep, and caffeine consumption. Those are kind of your foundations. And then from there, okay, if we've checked those boxes and we still have a problem, then maybe change seasons uh, in terms of your approach uh, or overall periodization. And then uh, we can reevaluate from there. Okay, perfect. So let's dig into the thyroid a little bit and how the thyroid plays a role in fat loss. So first for the listener, can you kind of explain how your thyroid impacts your body fat levels? Sure. So thyroid is kind of your energy regulator, uh, has a number of other important components as well. Um, but you could think of free T3 as your metabolically active thyroid hormone. So our body has a way of sort of regulating energy output. This is essentially part of our adaptive physiology. It's a survival mechanism to ensure that we are appropriately regulating our energy intake. Um, if Free T3 is super, super, super high. You see things like generating excess body heat. Um, you are uh, a little bit, I'd say, you know, more like just likely to burn through those calories. Whereas if you're hypothyroid or have relatively low free T3, you can think of your body as being kind of frugal or a miser of energy. We're being a little bit more conservative with our uh, spendiness, if you will, uh, of that energy. Similar to like if you had a budget with your finances, if you're on a pretty tight budget, you're a little bit restricted there, you're being a little bit more frugal versus if you're kind of opening things up and uh, money is flying out of the wallet, you could think of that as like having significantly um, higher thyroid hormone levels. Uh, it can also influence things like non-exercise activity. So when we're looking at a total daily energy expenditure equation, you know, a huge component of that is what are the calories that we're burning in you know non-exercise activity or outside of our training sessions? Typically, if someone has very low thyroid hormone levels, it tends to impact things like quality of life, um, brain fog, overall energy and desire to do additional activities. So sometimes what you see is not only are thyroid hormone values decreased in like a chronic dieter or someone who's maybe having some thyroid issues, but what's happening is because of their biofeedback and their overall symptoms, they're not engaging in the same health behaviors that they would otherwise had they had you know, optimized thyroid hormone levels. So that's really the direct impact or the hammer that impacts the total daily energy expenditure is their exercise activity thermogenesis and their non-exercise activity. The output isn't quite what it should be because they simply don't feel their best. So it almost sounds like this can kind of create a vicious cycle where due to that thyroid downregulation, we in turn, as you said, just don't engage in those normal healthy lifestyle factors we would, which kind of leads to less energy output. And again, we can kind of create a vicious cycle there. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, you can certainly offset it um, to a degree, but it is easier. You could think of it as the difference between like swimming with the current versus swimming upstream. Someone with optimized thyroid hormone levels is just going to have a slightly easier time moving through different sort of nutritional changes versus someone who's maybe suboptimal. It doesn't mean that we, we don't want to get to a place where because our thyroid's maybe not 100% what we want it to be, you have to be careful because you don't want to assign sort of these labels and have a fixed mindset around like, well, my thyroid is a, you know, X value. So there I can't lose body fat. Technically, you know, we could still achieve a deficit and lose body fat. It's just going to be harder to do 
and it's a little bit less sustainable or realistic to maintain over a longer period of time or leads to a more aggressive deficit uh, that can tend to be a bit more restrictive. So we really have a number of different options, but usually the best thing to do is like address the issues at hand and the root cause as to why you're potentially suffering from suboptimal thyroid values. And then you know, proceed with your nutrition as you would to pursue a physique goal, but we want to make sure your health is, you know, optimized first. Okay. So it sounds like if you, if this is a potential issue for you, we don't want to immediately enter a deficit that we've spent time addressing and potentially fixing the root causes. For sure. That would be more for your chronic dieter. I would say there are going to be some folks who have more hypothyroid symptoms who maybe have been eating the standard American diet or have some nutritional deficiencies, okay. they're sedentary, they have higher body fat levels and other aspects of, you know, potentially issues with leptin signaling or, you know, being sedentary, eating far too many calories for far too long. They may not have optimal thyroid levels for that individual. They actually would benefit from a calorie deficit and an increase in movement. So really we need to understand our client avatar in terms of who needs what you can arrive at suboptimal you know, thyroid health in a number of different ways. So the most important thing is figuring out how did we get here and then we can decide the appropriate decision. So some people would benefit from just improving their body fat levels in terms of their overall hormonal health, whether that's thyroid, testosterone, or otherwise. Whereas, you know, some people, um, they're in a little bit of a different boat. They've been dieting or attempting to diet for so long. They've constantly been trying to achieve that caloric deficit and it keeps escaping them because basically they continue to downregulate their metabolism. And then the deficit they would need to adhere to, to ultimately lose more body fat is just such a low calorie number that it really becomes unrealistic to sustain for months and months on end to achieve the goals that they have. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So I think in the context of like our podcast avatar, we're talking primarily to lean people trying to get leaner, we could say. Right. So in that situation, I know you talk a lot when it comes to dieting about depth, duration, and frequency. What roles are dieting as a whole? Like, how is that again, for that lean person trying to get leaner, how is a calorie deficit or chronic dieting going to impact your thyroid? So when we think about chronic dieting and the thyroid, a couple of things tend to happen. One is our body is essentially a miser of energy first and foremost. So when we're consuming less energy, our body is perceptive to that. If we couple that with an attempt to increase cardiovascular exercise or energy output, we essentially create this calorie gap where you know we're you know attempting to increase energy expenditure while also simultaneously decreasing energy availability. When we decrease energy availability for a significant period of time, we do see uh, some transient metabolic adaptations. And now all of this means is you do downregulate your metabolic rate to some extent, things like thyroid hormone, um, we're typically upregulating cortisol a bit, downregulating reproductive hormones. Now, when I say transient, it means temporary, meaning if you were to eat more food, we can potentially restore those a bit or improve them if they're suboptimal right now. Now, those transient changes, that doesn't mean that you can't lose weight, you still could if you were able to get into a deficit. All this means is that it impacts total daily energy expenditure to where it becomes harder to achieve the deficit because you require a deeper deficit to continue to promote fat loss. So if someone were to chronically diet and that has some negative implications for TDEE and the thyroid, it basically just means it's harder to sustain that deficit over time. And what a lot of people miss out on is when we subtract calories and macronutrients, we're typically removing micronutrients from the equation as well. So when it comes to thyroid, things like selenium, 
zinc, um, you know, loads of important micros that are going to impact that thyroid function and making sure that we feel our best, you know, and also um, lose fat at the rate that we want to. We also need to remember thyroid does also exert some effects on fat cells independent of metabolic rate. So there's also a little bit of a argument to be made in terms of optimizing your thyroid health in terms of body composition, even if it's not directly that TDEE argument as well. Okay. Okay. So when we're looking at like depth versus duration of a diet, so let's say on one end, we have an aggressive, but much shorter diet on the other end, we have a longer duration diet that is less aggressive. They both end as the same individual. They both end up at the same body weight, body fat. Is there like a preference when we're looking at like the impact on your thyroid? Is there going to be like at the end of the diet, once the reverse diet is over, Hey, we'll basically end up in the same place as kind of potato, potato, or is there a preference in your perspective between the two? I'd say when we're trying to balance the depth of the diet relative to the duration, I try to look at someone's overall diet history and their personal preferences. So some people prefer to have a shorter but steeper caloric deficit, meaning we remove a certain amount of calories and it's a larger calorie gap, meaning we're reducing our energy intake relative to our expenditure, but we're doing it for a very short period of time. And it's kind of an acute intervention to drive fat loss. And the key theme is we need an exit strategy to get out of this. So if you can do that and you can sustain that more aggressive deficit, that's certainly an option. The key is usually the deeper we go, um, the more we want to contain the time frame. Now, the other option is you could potentially kind of go slow and steady wins the race, right? Now, I'd argue that depending on your personality and how quickly you need to see results with your fat loss pursuits, um, you know, subtracting just a little bit here and there, trimming up around the edges, and then trying to follow that for a long period of time. That really takes kind of that, uh, I wouldn't say brute force approach, but it takes someone who's very consistent and they're willing to play the long game and they're okay with very micro changes. If you need to see drastic results um, and really see rapid changes in terms of your physique in order to adhere to a deficit, that type of person tends to just mentally respond a little bit better to a slightly more aggressive fat loss approach. It just needs to be shorter in duration. Now, if I'm only subtracting 100 or 200 or 300 calories or something, um, now remember, this is relative to the size of the individual. So if you're a petite individual with a lower overall TDEE, 300 calories might be a significant drop for you relative to your daily intake. So please keep that in mind. If we're just speaking in terms of averages, obviously guys that are maybe the size of Jeremiah or me, we're going to need a different intake than maybe someone who's different size and different activity level. So really you could think of these as sort of inversely related. We don't want to diet in a super steep, aggressive deficit for a very long duration. That would be a surefire way to create metabolic adaptations. Um, otherwise, you know, we could go a little bit uh, more aggressive cut in calories, short period of time, or we just do a little bit more mild cut and uh, we contain the overall duration. Now, the thing is, we also have another variable called frequency, and that's essentially, you know, across the year or a cycle of periodization, how frequently are we dipping into that deficit? So the more that someone's dieted in the past, the more we need to be considerate of how frequently we're going into that deficit and how deep we'll actually need to go to achieve sustainable fat loss. Okay. Very, very well put there. So it sounds like more than anything, we're just focusing on, or the most important variable here is still going to be your ability to adhere to the diet when we're talking about depth and duration and then considering frequency and your diet history is also a very important variable. It is adherence for sure. I mean, we definitely see 
we know that we can have people fast and we'll see changes in their hormones, right? So like when you're in a deficit, it's not really a matter of if we're going to see adaptations and changes. It's really a matter of when. So our job as coaches is to use different tools in our tool belt and arsenal to kind of mitigate that downregulation. So maybe I go with the aggressive fat loss approach, but maybe I'm doing kind of a 5-2, which is kind of that Bill Campbell, you know, refeeding methodology uh, of sorts or having some maintenance days interspersed with a more aggressive deficit. Um, maybe I'm going a little bit longer with my deficit and then I take a diet break, which then helps to alleviate some of that as well, um, or just gives me a bit of a mental break on the way. So it's not always necessarily just has to be one or the other. It's which one is preferable to the client, but then what interventions or tools do I have to sort of intervene and maybe uh, mitigate the degree to which we see some of those unfavorable changes. Also remember someone's lifestyle is going to be huge here. If I have someone who's sleeping nine or 10 hours a night, I can probably get pretty aggressive with the deficit if they're managing their stress, You know, their training performance isn't really suffering. I have a lot of wiggle room there. If someone has a newborn at home, their sleep isn't great, you know, and they have these body composition goals, I'm probably not going to want to be as aggressive with the food subtraction because other elements of their lifestyle sort of limit their overall resilience to these, you know, the deficit, which in and itself is a bit of a stressor. That calorie gap is a stressor. So we have different ways to accomplish fat loss goals and achieve a deficit, uh, including moving a bit more, increasing non-exercise activity. But what we use and when we use it is largely going to be based on your diet history as well as um, what's currently going on, you know, in your life. Okay, absolutely. So relative then to like the five two approach, for example, I just had Bill Campbell on that podcast. Actually, just came out yesterday, and Will Grazione and I talked about a similar topic. Actually, from your perspective, when we're looking at like an approach like the five two, is that something you view as primarily just an adherence strategy, or do you think that is going to help offset like some metabolic adaptation, some thyroid down regulation, anything of that nature? I'd say the research is still a little mixed. I think it's a combination of the mental component of sticking with it, but it does make sense that intervening in a way when our body is so uh, perceptive to energy intake, that adjusting and modulating energy intake could make a difference. Now, for some people, if they just need to see results as fast as possible, obviously adding two maintenance days or highly higher calorie intake days may potentially have some detriments in terms of the overall speed at which they're losing weight. However, Mm -hmm. if my strategy is to deploy this over 16 weeks, 20 weeks, 24 weeks, I think it does add a bit of longevity or like a long game to the approach. So I'm in favor of it. I do think it's a mix of psychological reasoning as well as some physiology. I would say a lot of the sort of science behind the idea of higher calorie days or refeeding sort of refuted in a way in terms of the actual like physiological implications. But a lot of those, when they were done, to my understanding and my recollection of some of the research, um, and I think this came prior to Bill's uh, research, was it wasn't necessarily a long enough period of time. So they were very short interventions. Whereas with the consecutive days, higher calories, we may potentially get some benefits that we don't have if, let's say, you just consume higher calories for like 12 hours. So I think the length of the overall how long we're deploying those maintenance calories could make a difference. And I do think there's kind of that psychological and community component of like, if I can have a bit more food, maybe I can, um, you know, go out to eat with friends, or maybe I can have people over to my house and have like a family gathering 
which is an important component of your overall health and wellness. So I think there's a number of ways that it makes a difference. I don't know that we have all the data yet to say, yeah, does this to leptin and this to thyroid and, you know, it makes my testosterone like ridiculously high. I don't think we can say that yet, but I would argue it's probably a mix of both. Um, And anecdotally does seem to work in practice for folks who can adhere to it. And there's also the training performance considerations. So if I'm chronically calorically restricted, if I'm not consuming enough carbohydrate, that may have training implications. If I have two slightly higher calorie intake days, I can either pair that with my more intense exercise, or you know maybe I'm eating more food, you know right you know immediately prior to one of my more aggressive training sessions of the week. If that's the case, that may help fuel performance, retain lean muscle tissue, uh, and just overall support my physique goals. So I think there's kind of three angles to look at here. There's the overall psychology adherence aspect, there's the physiology, and also the exercise performance, because a huge part of what we're trying to do as people who have fat loss goals, lean muscle retention goals, body composition goals, at the end of the day, like muscle tissue is like currency in itself. So if I can diet in a way that preserves lean muscle tissue by optimizing my protein intake and maybe using some of this situational quote unquote refeeding or like maintenance intervention strategies, I think that's a great way to make sure at least a few of your training days are still optimized. Um, even if we're splitting hairs and it's like two to 5%, you compound that over years and years and years. So like for me, if I've been lifting or you know pursuing physique goals for like 15 years, that adds up, right? It's like the compound right. interest of it, right? If it's someone who's just kind of looking for you know rapid fat loss and it's like their first approach, I don't know that I would deploy that. Um, I also would say anyone with a history of either, you know, disordered eating patterns or struggling to kind of regulate their intake, I don't really love the pattern of like restriction and then more food and restriction and more food. I'd probably go more isocaloric with anyone who's struggling with their relationship with food um, or just try to get that managed first before maybe using some of these strategies or deploying those in a deficit. So those would be my only caveats, but I think it's really like a three-prong approach. It's the you know, mental aspect, it's the physical aspect, and also what does this mean for your training? Absolutely. And on the conversation with Bill, I know he mentioned like when we're looking at metabolic rate and decline in metabolic rate, that is always so closely tied to did the individual lose muscle tissue or not. So even if we're looking at we can train harder, we can recover better for a few days a week, it does make sense of that in itself would make a big difference. Um, do you have time to dig into the five M's framework or Okay. Okay, cool. So first, that's kind of the final thing I wanted to dig into here. First, can you explain to us what your 5Ms framework is and where you kind of think it's useful for coaches or anyone who's self-coaching? For sure. So when I talk about the 5Ms of metabolism made simple, the idea behind this is managing appetite, maximizing adherence, mitigating adaptation. We want to be mindful of our micronutrient intake and we want to maximize absorption. So this really runs the spectrum of everything that people talk about in the health and fitness industry, whether it's gut health, which is really the absorption M um, or maximizing absorption, and then things like metabolic adaptation, which is we want to mitigate adaptation by using tools like periodization over time. So the five M's were my way of sort of synthesizing a lot of quote unquote, like internet arguments, and then taking evidence-based strategies and also things that I've seen work successfully in my coaching career. And then, you know, combining those in a way that really helps to have a big picture understanding of nutrition and metabolism. 
Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So let's kind of dig into some real world application of the 5M. So again, we have maximize adherence, manage appetite, mitigate adaptation, maximize absorption, and bind your micros. So when we're digging into maximize adherence, and of course we probably won't have time to cover every single aspect of this, but from like a high level overview, when we're looking to, Hey, I'm coaching you as a coach through how do we help clients maximize adherence? Are there kind of some big rocks that you're focusing on here? For sure. So I would say, um, when we're looking at maximizing adherence overall, um, there's a couple different components of this, uh, because, you know, I would argue that appetite does play into adherence, right? Nobody wants to be like a hungry, hungry hippo all the time. Uh, but you know, we do want to consider that really we're looking at adherence and, you know, it's really hard to separate from appetite. So just kind of zooming out when we think about metabolism, right? We need to consider present and future full fuel and present and future fullness. Um, so if we're not eating in a way that's going to help us make better decisions and subsequent meals, that's going to impact adherence, right? Like if I eat a breakfast or lunch that causes me to overeat at lunch, afternoon, snack, and dinner, well, that's probably not very good for my goals. Um, you know, if, so that's a huge component with appetite. We're talking mainly about protein and fiber. Um, adherence could be a combination of using a mix of, you know, flexible dieting strategies as well as, um, you know, other subcomponents of nutrition that are going to help us really be successful. Um, so I really try to, you know, they're really hard to separate and parse out individually, but you know, the idea is I need to be making meal by meal decisions that are supporting what I do at that future meal. And also my appetite when I arrive at that actual meal. Now, in terms of appetite and adherence, we also have things like um, mindful eating strategies or attentive eating, also the pace at which we eat our food. Both of those things are going to play a huge role in terms of meal-by-meal -meal enjoyment of the food and also what happens in terms of you know our fullness kind of leaving that actual meal. Um, so that's a huge component. Uh, and then I would just say kind of striking a balance between micronutrient density and flexibility. So we know like, hey, probably shouldn't just eat Fruit Loops all the time. But uh, you know, we also know that like, you know, having a meal plan, I only eat the same things every day, that could also lead to micronutrient deficiencies as well as like impaired enjoyment of the overall process. So there's a couple of different things that I get into into the book as far as, you know, how do we actually use this um, to our advantage? And then, you know, what are some strategies uh, that can be really helpful for a dieter who's trying to maximize their long-term success? Okay. So when we're looking then at mitigating adaptation, what are the big rocks you're looking at here? So for adaptation, I basically talk about the seasons of nutrition. So kind of the idea of having building phases, burn phases, and break, um, you know, phases or seasons of nutrition. And then some of the things I talk about are methods like Bill Campbell's 5-2 method. I talk about reverse dieting or recovery diets, as well as some of the research um, on things like Matador. And even though some of these haven't been successfully duplicated in the research, it's just ideas of how to plan out your nutrition over a longer period of time to make it sustainable for you. So the biggest sort of theme here, right, is with um, you know build, burn, and break is that not every season is one where we need to be dieting we can utilize and also performance phases can be stressful on the body as well. So that still falls into that burn category. Build is kind of, you know, ramping up uh, our overall food intake, you know, build could also be just focusing on, you know, caloric surplus and lean muscle building. 
but really it can be either a reverse diet or any time where we're approaching maintenance or above maintenance calories. A break could be a diet break or even that intervention that we talked about in terms of maybe having consecutive days of eating maintenance calories. The idea of burn is just it's putting some sort of physiological stress on the body or compromising our overall sort of physiological bandwidth. So we wouldn't want to necessarily diet forever. That wouldn't be super sustainable. Um, so ideally, when we're looking at mitigating adaptation, we want both phases and periodization when it comes to our nutrition. But we're also using strategies, even if we are in something like a burn phase or a fat loss phase, maybe we're incorporating a periodic high calorie day or calorie cycling or something like interval dieting as a way to make that sort of stick long-term um, and continue to be able to pursue our goals without kind of falling off the wagon. So it sounds like essentially play the long game. We're not just looking at always, how can I continue to lose weight as quickly as possible? But again, what can I do to set myself up for the most success six months, 12 months and further down the road and like have a plan in place for these different seasons rather than again, just always what can I do to lose weight as quickly as possible? Right. Cool. All right. So maximize absorption. What are the main things we're looking at here? Sure. So when it comes to maximizing absorption, I start with some really foundational concepts. Um, so, you know, even going back to like thousands of years ago, Hippocrates basically said, you know, bad digestion is the root of all evil and death sits in the bowels. So we take like a super rewind, not that we go like in the history class, but we have to understand that, um, you know, we have, I think, Recently, over the past couple of years, physicians alone wrote over 1.8 million pharmaceutical prescriptions just to deal with digestive disorders. And we're spending about $141 billion on digestive issues. So massive problem. So that's why I wanted to include it in the book, even though it's not necessarily a book solely about gut health or designed to replace like a textbook. It's really just starting with the idea that a lot of people regularly complain of digestive issues like bloating, acid reflux, gas, or just general discomfort. Um, or maybe when they're going to the bathroom, if they were to look at their bowel movements relative to a Bristol stool chart or something, it's not really optimal. So I start with the basics, things like chewing, you know, also attentive eating, uh, looking at post-meal walks. Uh, there was actually a study in 2021, I believe it compared prokinetic medication to post-meal walks, and the walking was equally as effective in resolving some of the symptoms and digestive complaints that people had uh, compared to the medication. So even some really low-hanging fruit, like just taking a stroll around the block can go a really long way uh, to helping your digestion. Now, obviously, okay. certain foods are more agreeable for some folks than others. Um, but if I had to think of like a list, like seven or eight things, um, I always say like kind of deviate from the standard American diet, choose those micronutrient dense whole foods whenever possible. You want to chew your food and consider taking more time at each meal to eat attentively. Uh, consider implementing those short post-meal walks, especially if you're struggling with bloating or gas. Um, consider adjusting your meal spacing. So um, for some folks, they're you know, maybe they're awake like 16 hours a day and they're eating most of those hours. So consider taking like 12 hours between your evening and morning meal. You don't have to go full-blown time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting, but just giving your gut a break from constantly inundating it with food can make a massive difference. And you can work towards whatever eating strategy or meal spacing you find to be best. Same thing goes for, let's say you go home from work, get home from work and you've saved a bunch of calories or macros. A lot of people sort of macro hoard, which is not very good for their gut health either because they'll come home and they have dinner and then they have a snack and then they want to have like quote unquote dessert or like a pre-bed meal. And essentially within a window of a few hours, we've shoved a lot of food into the system. So that's something I'm always mindful of as well. 
Um, I do talk about adjusting fiber intake to your individual tolerance and what's adequate for you. This can range pretty significantly. So I don't like throwing out one specific number for everyone because the size of the individual, your water intake and your total daily calorie intake are going to influence that. So talk a little bit about how to find that range in the book. Uh, another key concept is diversifying your food. Um, so this is where having a whole food matrix, so like colorful fruits, um, vegetables, if you tolerate them well and, and enjoy certain vegetables in your plan, um, you can include that. Uh, I do talk about, um, you know, fermented foods can have some benefit. I would say some are a little bit overhyped, you know, things where people think kombucha is going to solve all their health and fitness problems. It's really not uh, the point there. So it is a little bit lower on the list. And then if you have been on an antibiotic treatment or recently had anything from your doctor in terms of prescriptions um, specific to antibiotics or um, recent hospital stay or like intravenous antibiotics or anything like that, uh, a specific yeast-based probiotic called Saccharomyces can be especially beneficial, um, especially when you've had that antibiotic uh, treatment from your doctor. So those are some of the items that I suggest in the book and things that I've found to be especially helpful with clients over the years, all of which have research and evidence to support their implementation and overall efficacy. Okay. That's extremely helpful. So then finally, when we're talking about minding your macros, what are the main focal points we're looking at here? Yeah. Or so micros, of, excuse uh, me, not macros. Yeah. Micros. So we're, you know, I kind of introduced the concept of metabolism, talking about both stress and energy availability. So calories are introduced relatively early in the book, even going as far back as Wilbur Atwater, Lulu Hunt Peters, and a lot of the sort of foundational Mount Rushmore individuals when it comes to caloric intake. The reason I wanted to include micronutrient status in the book is I think it's something that's often lost in mainstream sort of health and fitness. So we get very caught up in arguments about macronutrition and you know, should I lower carbs? Should I lower fats? Like, you know, what should my protein intake be? And people are getting into these sort of internet arguments and not paying attention to foundational essential nutrients like vitamins and minerals that can directly impact your metabolism if you're deficient. So if we look at like the National Health um, and Nutrition Examination Survey, we see that's, you know, there are plenty of Americans who have vitamin D deficiencies, magnesium deficiencies, uh, maybe issues related to uh, zinc and other nutrients. So we want to make sure that we're getting those micros in uh, because it can impact our overall health and well-being. So, you know, you can't sleep on your micros. And with popular, you know, fad diet culture, unfortunately, one thing we see is like, you know, one person's going gluten-free, someone else is going vegan, someone else is going keto, paleo, dairy-free, carnivore. Whenever we remove a complete food group or food ingredients, you know, we're subtracting uh, certain nutrients. So for example, let's say you want to go vegan. You're probably running the risk of being deficient in vitamin B12, zinc, calcium, iron, as well as DHA and EPA, which are omega-3 fatty acids um, on keto, potentially missing out on calcium, potassium, magnesium, um, certain B vitamins like pantothenic acid, copper, and vitamin E. So if you have a diet style that you're following for fat loss, and I'm not just picking on keto and veganism, I'm just kind of looking at two ends of the extreme to show that regardless of your nutritional strategy that you choose to deploy, you want to make sure that if you are eliminating a certain food group or restricting calories, we're not running a micronutrient deficiency as well, because that does have overall health consequences and can impair your quality of life and just general feelings of well-being. 
Absolutely. And I think in a situation like that, using a tool as simple as chronometer can be so valuable to just get a better eye on not just where your macronutrients are at, but also where your micronutrient intake is at. So I know we've mentioned your book coming up soon, um, Metabolism Made Simple, several times. Can you kind of just fill the listeners in on what made you decide to write the book and really what they can expect to gain from it? So looking back, I'm kind of thinking about what did make me decide to write a book. Um, You know, I think it's for me, uh, I wanted a way to consolidate some of my frameworks, methods, strategies, and things I found to be effective. I think books are also very accessible. So regardless of where someone is in their health and fitness journey or as a coach, uh, it can serve as that resource. The most frustrating thing about creating a book relative to a podcast is like with a podcast, you can update your opinion any week and post an episode and be like, hey guys, this is the way I'm thinking about this particular problem now. The mildly terrifying thing about a book is you put your ideas on paper and you could change your mind two years from now. So I've got all of this in what I believe to be true based on my experience, what I've seen, you know, what I've learned um, through my own research and and working with other industry experts and then also applying this with coaches and people in their own transformation. But I would say, you know, I think it's just kind of that idea of like living, learning, and passing that information on. Um, I, I do enjoy teaching and and sharing and testing ideas and also working on how do we articulate this in the best way possible. I just think that the nutrition industry as a whole, health and fitness industry as a whole, sometimes we miss the mark in that you know we're so focused on the latest thing or we're arguing with each other or we're kind of vying for attention for you know different you know whether it's one person has an app or someone else is selling you know, certain supplements or whatever the case may be, a lot of times in that noise, we miss the most important messages when it comes to nutrition and metabolism. But simply put is even folks who have conventional nutrition education or certification, I don't really know that any program really educates people on metabolism or just like the concept of what metabolism is. And so we're stuck in this like elementary school paradigm of like, if I eat food and I gain weight, I have a slow metabolism. If I, you know, eat food and I lose weight, I have a fast metabolism. You know, we're, we're stuck in this like really antiquated, you know, thought process around something that's such an important part of our health. So I set out to write the book to really just like make sense of nutrition and share some nutritional principles. And, and there's also some stuff on movement, resistance training, walking, um, and how to kind of think about those pillars in your life as well. Uh, but these are really just tools for managing your metabolism and something that I wish, you know, I was given a copy of this book like 10 or 15 years ago because it would have saved me a lot of time, a lot of headaches and frustration. And so hopefully I can do that for the audience. And I'm just a firm believer that health and fitness are kind of a gateway drug into personal development. So, you know, taking the steps to improve your mind and body, I think goes a long way in terms of, you know, your not only your overall health, um, but really just kind of your life and and sense of purpose as an individual. And so I know health and fitness was super important for me, not only in cultivating confidence and exploring new opportunities and meeting new people. Um, and playing such an important role in my life, but I know that it can help other people regardless of you know what walk walk of life they come from or what their goals are. I just think it's kind of that important you know gateway into other opportunities in the world. So you know first managing your health is a great way to really get traction with anything. So I'd say if I that was a couple different reasons I wrote the book, but you know looking back, I think, I'm not exactly sure why I started, but you know, I one thing I am sure of now is like I think it's important information that needs to be passed on, um, and it's definitely something that I wish I had in my tool belt, you know, when I first was exposed to the health and fitness industry. 
Absolutely. I think that'll be immensely valuable, not only for coaches, but anyone who's self-coaching. Because again, I think so many people just see metabolism as kind of this invisible force or almost like this invisible being where you either have a good metabolism or you have this evil metabolism. And it's so much of it is like, essentially they see it as something that's so far out of their control when there is so much we can do to kind of take control of our health again. Um, Sam, I know we're coming up on time here. I really appreciate you being here. Before I let you go, will you just let the listener know where they can find you, anything else you'd like to plug? And alongside that, do you have a release date for the book yet? Yeah. So the book release will definitely be November 2022. As far as specific dates, um, it'll definitely be between November 1st and 15th. If, if something happens and something goes terribly wrong after we record this podcast, there is a chance it could be a little bit later. But I'm I'm really vying for either 11-1 or 11-8. Uh, of November 2022. And if you're interested in grabbing a copy of the book, I do have like a pre-release wait list at metabolismmadesimple.com. Um, I'll also be posting about it on my Instagram, which is at Sam Miller Science. My podcast is also Sam Miller Science. But uh, yeah, the intention is November 2022. I just approved the layout um, as like prior to recording this episode with Jeremiah. So really the only steps from here on out is just like getting those printed copies uh, all set and ready to go and getting that book listed on Amazon. And that's where um, you know we'll have the hard copy, um, soft cover version, and also Kindle you know, coming out this fall. So super excited for it. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully we fall in that range that I just listed. So I just put a little bit more pressure on myself. I think that's the first time I've like publicly announced <laughs> the actual date, but, uh, that's what we're shooting for. So hopefully it'll be in hand for you guys prior to, uh, Thanksgiving of this year. Perfect. Okay. We'll hold you to that. I will link up where to find the book, where to find the podcast, where to find your Instagram, uh, at Sam Miller science all around. Once again, man, thank you for being here. I really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me back.